Welcome to the Cannabis Cultivation and Science Podcast. I'm your host, Tad Hussey of Kiss Organics. This is the podcast where we discuss the cutting edge of growing from a science-based perspective and draw on top experts from around the industry to share their wisdom and knowledge. My guest this week is Colin Bell. Colin is the co-founder, co-inventor, and chief growth officer at Grosentia, parent company of Mammoth. Colin completed his PhD in soil microbial ecology in 2009. As a research scientist at Colorado State University, Colin published dozens of peer-reviewed publications that were focused on elucidating microbial-mediated processes that enhance plant growth. Colin left his academic position at Colorado State University in March 2015 to launch Mammoth, a young company in the ag tech sector that develops microbial biostimulants to sustainably increase plant yield and an all-natural biocontrol product to prevent pests. Their first product, Mammoth P, is a beneficial bacterial bloom stimulant that targets phosphorus cycling to maximize both quality and yield in cannabis plants. Now on to the podcast. Hey, Colin, thanks for coming on the show today. Dad, hey, how are you doing? It's great talking to you today. Yeah, I'm excited to have you on here. I've I've known you for a long time and we've chatted and, uh, you know, become friends through this process. And uh, I wanted to get you on to talk a little bit about uh, microbes, since that's sort of what your your background is in. Man, microbes are my thing. I appreciate it. That's a perfect topic for us to discuss today. <laughs> well, can we start off by giving listeners a little idea of your own background, uh, you know, going back into maybe into college? Sure. Absolutely. So, you know, from, a, from an academic and college perspective, I ended up getting a PhD in soil microbi- microbiology, but it was really a speciality in microbial ecology, which is the study of microbes in the environment, uh, mostly how they integrate with plants and, and affects kind of uh, interact with climate as well on some level. I was a desert microbial ecologist for years and years. I did a lot of work in the Chihuahuan Desert, and I did some work in the Great Basin and different parts of the Chihuahuan Desert. And what I was looking at, we did a lot of climate change studies in my research as a, as a student. And then in professional, in my professional career, I worked for the USDA Department of Agriculture, uh, Agriculture Research Services. It's called the USDA ARS. I worked for the Forest Service. And then I worked for Colorado State University, the Natural Resource Ecology Lab. And almost all the projects I was employed in, in those different organizations were relating not only effects of, of climate change, but uh, those effects and how plant microbe interactions responded to climate scenarios. And so I have a, a longstanding career in understanding how microbes in- interact with plants, not only in, in, in natural settings, but also in agriculture settings. So I've been geeking out on this, holy moly, for almost 20 years now. That's great. You know, I want to talk a little bit about um, how you founded the company and some of that stuff too. But uh, you, you already brought up some really interesting questions for me. Uh, one of the things that I'm curious about is how, how do microbes dif- different in these various regions um, geographically? And then what sort of persistence do you see? Because I guess when I was, uh, I got to go to the soil science uh, meeting a couple of years ago now. And one of the things that they talked about was how microbial populations will differ just from, you know, just from watering or hydrology will change the populations quite a bit in, a, in over a, you know, a fairly short period of time. So what were you seeing, uh, you know, sort of on a macro scale with these microbes? 
Yeah, there's a lot of great work on on this, and, and we you can look up some of it also. I'm talking to the listeners here. As a mild, microbial biogeography is kind of the the study of microbes and how they're dispersed across across a, a, a large uh, geography, so to speak. But but what it really comes down to, and this comes back to the very fundamentals of microbiology 101, and that's the environment selects that. And in all these microbial biogeography studies, what you're going to find is the only way to look to, to correlate why microbial communities and communities is an assemblage of multiple species. And so microbes don't exist as isolates or as single species in nature. They exist as a community or a consortia, just to be clear. And so you're looking at, at microbes and how their relative abundances form a broader community or the total microbial biomass within any region. That's typically how these questions are framed. And you're looking at the environmental factors. There could be cold, there could be heat, there could be moisture, there could be uh, soil textures have a big a big part to do with it. You know, there's sand, soak, clay, and they have different hydrology properties. And there's these interactions, uh, more importantly. And then there's pH, which is a, is a biggie. Noah Fierro is one of my favorite uh, microbial ecology scientists of all time. He's here at uh, Colorado, University of Colorado in Boulder. He's got a lot of great science. And we could probably make an introduction. We should get him on the show sometime. Man, he's smart. But uh, he's done a lot of this work. And what he found was more than any one factor, pH significantly shifts microbial community assemblage across a wide geographic region. And, and again, there's a lot of factors that control um, environmental factors that interact to actually control and form these environments. You think about biodiversity, Tad, from the equator, from a plant perspective, it's been well studied. Moving outward towards the poles, you get more diversity at the, at the center, and then it, 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 it narrows as you get to the poles because environment selects plant species, and more hospitable environments allow for more diversity and more biomass and more climate and more and more cohabitation, so to speak. And then as we go up through North America, through Canada, et cetera, you get fewer species because the environment's that much harsher. You can think about that from a microbial perspective, but it's not on that scale. It's on a micro scale. And so these edaphic, which are soil properties, are and, and temperature and hydrology are the main properties that influence microbial communities. And I want to overlay uh, one extra uh, interaction, and that's plants. Because microbes in soil around the world interact and cohabitate very well with plants in the rhizosphere or root zone, because those are nice food sources. And so another layer that controls biodiversity is actually how plants and different plant species might be feeding microbial communities within their rhizosphere, when they're with their root zone in the soil. Wow, that's a lot to think about. So, essentially, if you were to bring a plant, then I'm thinking into a regional community that would have a, a pretty, a pretty dramatic effect effect on the biology in that rhizosphere. So, yes. So it would have a, a dramatic effect potentially in the soil. So microbes 
current soil. And let me let me layer this one more. So I was obsessed for a while, uh, as academically as a as a research scientist, of how plants might be able to engineer unique rhizosphere microbial communities, uh, which is the microbes in their root zone, to support plant success. And some of the examples that I was hypothesizing were invasive species. And I worked with cheatgrass for a while because I was, it was an interesting grass species. It's an invasive grass species that's spread across North America. It's not that great of a forage for cattle, but it was introduced by humans because it grew quick and it greened up quick in the season. So uh, it was, it was uh, planted to try and feed cattle earlier, what happened is it, it dries earlier, it creates a lot of seeds and it, it chokes out other later season grasses ultimately. And it wasn't a good choice to introduce, but it is what it is and it's spread across the country. One of the hypotheses, and I've published this work now, and I could probably share this paper with you for sure, is uh, so does cheatgrass engineer unique rhizosphere microbes as it spreads through different soil types to nurture its success, to help promote its ability to create seed, to create biomass, to maybe compete below ground. So it even has a stronger competitive advantage uh, from, from a physiological point of view. And so I did conduct that study in some native grasslands and not only in the field, but also replicated it in greenhouse studies. And we realized that different grass species and different photosynthetic groups, C3, C4, some forb species, and even some cam species are able to uniquely engineer different microbial community assemblages at some level uh, with their root exudates and the root structure. So there's a, a lot to that, but the other physical properties of pH, maybe a soil texture and temperature and hydrology also influence that. So, you know, I hear a lot of a lot of talk about like fungal to bacterial ratios in soils and um, such, but that almost feels too reductionist to me in a lot of ways. Because uh, what, what you're essentially saying is that this, in your example here, this grass is able to change the microbial, you know, populations or communities in the soil around the rhizosphere, making it more hospitable for this one grass and less hospitable for other grasses. So, if I'm understanding correctly, would you say then that that if we, we want to look at this um, from a broader perspective, that that might be challenging to do? We really have to um, identify the actual consortia in you know with each with each particular plant species and the impact it has on soil. Or am I totally missing the point here? Are you, are you saying are you saying relative taking it one step uh, to a higher resolution than just using? growth fung fungal bacterial ratios is that what you're trying to make the comparison for yeah i'm not explaining this very accurately um but essentially you know so so what what i'm trying to get at is that we have a, a lot of people claiming that if you get the you know fungal to bacterial ratios correct or if you use these specific indigenous microbes you may get certain impacts on plant health um but to me that feels a little a little squishy like we still don't know exactly what's going on um and you know what, I, what I'm finding is that there's so, there's so much in the range when we say the word bacteria or archaea, like there's so much we still don't know. And uh, there's so much that falls into those kingdoms that, um, 
do we do, can we really make those sorts of, um, comparisons at, at that macro level or macro scale? Well, you, you can make them, but it's, it's about, uh, defining, uh, the assumptions and what actually, what, what data you can actually get from those. And I think, I think what you're saying is a really fair statement. I used to use fungal bacterial ratios to kind of assess as, as one measure of assessing plant health across different ecosystems. And, and, and sometimes you're like, oh, this might look interesting, but it's very limiting. And until you dive in, like you suggested, to the actual contributors of those fungal uh, populations and those bacterial populations or communities, more, more specifically, assemblages of different fungal species, assemblages of different microbial bacterial species, you're, you're not, you're going to have limited information. And, and what I mean by that is, you know, fungi have different functional groups. You know, there's some arbuscular mycorrhizal groups that perform specific functions as symbionts to engage in specific plant roots. And there is a lot of plant specificity here where specific fungal species of arbuscular mycorrhizae are only really associated with certain grasses and echomycorrhizae is another example where there's some real specificity of those host plants to these fungi. And then other fungi do a very good job of decomposing and breaking down organic matter. And so those functional groups are pretty typical of fungi and there's some nutrient cycling, but in the bacterial world, there's a lot more uh, functional group specificity, meaning that there's certain groups of bacteria that are very specific for, you know, known for delivering or cycling nitrogen or, or phosphorus or other nutrients or doing uh, more specific functions. And so you really have to know what's there to, to form, again, what I was going to say is to form uh, robust hypothesis and any kind of data or any kind of science, if it's good, it's really just generating more better questions that you can address in new studies and and that's the iterative process of of science and the scientific method we have these hypotheses these guesses that we hope uh, resemble some form of reality we test them and with the answers that we get we're going to um we're going to ask new questions and we're going to test those new questions via hypothesis uh through new experiments and so it's kind of a never-ending cycle. I, I kind of enjoy that never-ending cycle. I don't do as much experimental science as I used to, but that's the idea. And it led me down uh, many really great paths of understanding how microbes are engaging with different plants in, in desert systems or more music grassland systems. And it kind of just forms my, my perspective of how nature performs and functions, uh, at least on some level. You know, as a scientist, Tad, I, I actually think about everything from a microbial perspective first. I don't know if that's healthy or not, but I can't help it. I just think <laughs> that's how I, that's the scale that I think at. Then I get, then I kind of extrapolated up from there. So, so we know that a, a ratio of fungal to bacteria in soil will influence the soil pH, uh, and we typically see certain ratios associated with uh, the types of plants in terms of like a plant succession table um, that we see in soil. So we'll see higher levels of fungal activity in forests over grasslands, for example. But what I'm wondering is, uh, can we take that data and extrapolate it any further? Like um, it, it sounds to me, and from my own just online research, it's, it appears to me that the plant really controls 
that relationship more. It's one of the strongest variables in in determining microbial populations, Um, more so than, um, you know, what a lot of people try to do when they try to add specific microbes or try and make compost teas that are more, you know, contain more bacteria than fungi, for example. Um, it, It seems like the plant is really the driver of that microbial community is that would you agree with that or, or what do you think i mean i know there's so many variables like you mentioned and um it's really the functional consortia that we're going for when we're trying to improve uh the rhizosphere but what, what do you see as the real driver there in that system yeah so i think that's that's a great point I'll, I'll, a little concept conceptually here you know you think about even even desert systems you know they're very very much higher some little bacterial ratios are, are all relative to the to abundance of fungi versus bacteria and in natural systems in general and in all terrestrial systems you're typically going to have higher all natural terrestrial ecosystems you're going to have higher fungal to back uh you're going to have higher fungal to bacterial ratios then you are obviously in aquatic systems because fungi don't thrive in aquatic systems and you are in agriculture systems because agriculture systems are very harsh over time on the natural microbial flora of the soil for several reasons because of the chemical inputs because of the physical um, tilling and and other aspects of management human management that really break down and influence uh, microbial biodiversity and microbial assemblages fungi the way they grow they hate tilling you know you can't till soils year after year and maintain significant uh, communities and healthy fungal abundances in those soils. That's why in natural systems, they persist from year after year and they can live off of the roots. I want to say that in general, you can create different microbial assemblages through different food sources. And I think this is what you're getting at. Then we'll relate it to the plant example. I can have a soil sample that I take from anywhere. You know, I'm great at growing microbes. That's what I do. I've done it for so long. I just know how to do it. And I can create 10 different food sources, just broths, which is just like a soup, a sugar soup. And maybe I'll drive that sugar soup from beets or carrots. And then I'll make another broth or, or media is what we'd call it in microbiology that has different sugar sources. And maybe I'll make another media that has a carbon source and sugar is carbon. So we're tying these kind of words together. Microbes need carbon, nitrogen, phosphorus, sulfur, all the macro and micronutrients, just like plants do for the most part. Plants need all those other nutrients as well, but they get their carbon from the air. That's the only difference in how they acquire those nutrients. And so we have a media that's rich of carbon and all the nutrients, but they're different chemical compositions. And if I had the same soil sample and maybe I you know, made a, a slurry where I mixed a, a gram of soil with 10 mils of water and mix it up and, a, and I aliquoted a drop of each of that, the same sample under those 10 different media dishes, what do you think the result would be? I'm going to tell you, every one of those medias would nurture different aspects of the microbial community from that initial sample. And so there's potentially tens of thousands of different microbes in that one sample. And again, we're using one soil sample, one scoop 
of soil, one spoonful of soil, mix it in some water and drop it on 10 different easily accessible food sources. And you're going to get 10 different results potentially. And I think that's fascinating. Food source is a huge determinant of what microbes are going to be nurtured and grow. And microbial abundances is at some level a probability game. If there's a food source that a microbial group likes and prefers and can take advantage of more so than another, microbes repeat and grow and multiply so quickly that they can actually physically outcompete their neighboring microbes because they can take advantage of a food source quicker. The same thing happens with different food sources. And so different plants, we know they create different food sources for microbes, meaning they score different carbons and different organic acids from their roots into the soil. All plants have evolved to do this, to nurture microbial communities that bring them success. Success meaning you want a healthy, thriving microbial community in the root zone because microbes do a lot of great things that plants love. Cyclonutrients is one of those. If you can create a hotbed of nutrients that plants can take up, they will succeed. They'll be able to produce seed or produce or stay healthy to the next generation. And biology, success in biology is passing your genome to the subsequent generations. And so typically, evolutionarily speaking, plants that are here now have succeeded because they've nurtured a healthy rhizosphere microbiome that's helped them succeed from one generation to the next since the very beginning of their existence to today. Does that help answer that question or is that too long? No, that's great. It it reminds me. So I I think essentially what you're equating is food source. And so whether in this case, the food source is the plant exudates what the plant's putting out through the roots, which thank you. That's exactly right. But I I don't want to, I don't want to minimize Tad the other edaphic or physical properties because soil texture, pH water sources, you know, there's different minerals in the soil that significantly affect pH. You think about calcareous soils where there's a lot more calcium and cleachy in the soils that's going to create a very basic alkaline soil that the plants are not going to be able to change. So there's this layer, this parent material layer and soil layer that the plants are growing in that aren't affecting pH as much as their, their rhizosphere, their hot zone within their root zone. Yes, they definitely can nurture and create a micro ecosystem within their root zone, but they're still in this broader environment of a very, uh, calcareous or, or alkaline soil type that they're not going to be able to influence to a neutral or to an acidic soil. And so the microbes that grow better in an alkaline environment, along with the food sources that the plants are feeding them, are going to be strongly influenced uh, and succeed better than microbes that do better at neutral or acidic soils with maybe a different food source or even the same food source. So there's multiple layers of, of interactions, physical and biotic, that you have to kind of conceive uh, holistically to understand the life of a microbe. I mean, it's in this room that's getting food squirted on it, and there's all these physical pressures and temperature and hydrology and pH. And do you know why pH is a factor for microbes? We can talk about that for a sec. Yeah, before we do, though, I just want to, I just want to highlight one of the things I've found. So essentially what you're saying is when, you know, taking the same source and I've done this with compost tea, I'll take the same compost source or earthworm castings and 
add, you know, unsulfured molasses or add alfalfa meal or, you know, some other sorts, food source, for example, and you yeah, end up with yeah. very different things under the microscope, eight, 12, 24 hours later. And if you go longer than that, I've found if you, you know, people ask about brewing compost tea for a long time, or can I leave it perpetually brewing? Uh, what I find, and this is the best analogy I've come up with to date, but it's not perfect. To me, it's like this idea that if you opened up all the gates in a zoo, at the end of the day, you'd have your apex predator, you'd have your, your lions, and you'd have probably some rats. And then, so they, that's all that's really left at that point, because you've lost all that diversity, because um, they're the most efficient microbes at utilizing whatever food source or what lasts the longest. And in, in the case with compost tea, all we're left with is one morphology of flagellate and one morphology of bacteria. And they just sort of fluctuate as they, you know, prey and predate on each other uh, over the next however long until the, the food sources eventually run out. Yes, I think that's a perfect way to talk about it. And I think you're thinking about it. The I might not be saying that in those words, but that's exactly what I'm trying to say. You're thinking about it right. And, and there's, there's another level too, I want to say, so you have a limited food source and you're going to nurture only so many um, like microbes that grow great at that food source. And that, and then those microbes are going to get more concentrated than the other microbes that, that don't grow as well. I want to, I want to layer in there what happens you know, not as much in teas. If you grew the teas out longer, this could happen. But also in soils, as you have fast-growing microbes, you have moderately fast-growing microbes, you have slow-growing microbes, and you have very slow-growing microbes, etc. And so there can be a succession event where those different microbial groups also favor different food sources. And so you can have, for fungi and bacteria, layers of succession. And that's why I like to talk about it. You can have this initial succession community you know what would happen if you left the tea going for a week or a month, which isn't practical for, for agriculture or for feeding, I wouldn't do that. But for the purposes of a microbial study, you would see turnover in that fermenter or that, that tea vessel uh, from one month to the next until it finally stabilized. And it's because the environment and that food source continues to turn around and you're going to have life and death of certain groups of microbes that ate the initially yummy, easily accessible carbon in the tea, then they would die off. And then you'd have another microbial group or groups of microbes that could kind of decompose and take in more easily that next more concentrated or more recalcitrant food source. So that's an example of, of so many layers, temporal and spatial and physical, uh, that the microbes are experiencing that might influence how we're growing microbes and how to grow them consistently, which all of these things are important. So now, you know, I'm kind of in the microbial manufacturing business. You have to understand all those physical and input properties to understand how to grow microbes with consistency. And the tea is a real tricky thing because you have to have consistent inputs also, don't you? Because if you don't have that completely, you're not going to get consistent results every time because it's going to be a slightly different food source. Well, that, and that's why uh, most research and most uh, scientists don't like compost tea. And I totally understand that. It's impossible to get consistency because even a different teaspoon of compost is going to have slightly different uh, microbial consortia, which is going to lead to slightly different responses to 
you know, a given food source. So I, and you know, like you mentioned your temperature, your water source, the amount of air, you know, the, the dissolved oxygen levels in the tea itself, there's so many variables. So I understand why compost tea isn't as loved by the science world. Um, though it has caught on a lot more, I will say over the last 15, 20 years, since we first started, um, experimenting with it. For sure. You know, Ted, I love compost teas and I love the idea of it. I love the practice of it. I just, I think it's important to acknowledge uh, the limitations or to acknowledge what we don't know. And it's just hard to know everything in that tea over time also, because those, the microbes will actually change. I did this in a, in a study looking at different natural systems, microbial communities can change significantly seasonally just because of those environmental shifts in temperature, in hydrology, and in plant structure where the plants die in the winter. And so different microbes actually thrive better and other microbes that thrive well in peak growth season in midsummer will decline. And so if you're gathering nutrients or gathering inputs from your surroundings through your tea, if you know all that stuff, you're fine. And I don't think that you're at risk because people love that, but you have to understand the, that you're introducing variability into cultivation if you're using teas without consistent inputs. Totally. And if you're using sources of uh, compost or other microbe sources that are not, um, that haven't been thermally composted, then you are potentially at risk for bringing in disease organisms as well. Um, yeah. So that is, that is definitely a concern. I, I completely acknowledge that's a good point. Um, let's talk a little bit about the fact that, so you're, like you mentioned, you're in the, the business of producing uh, microbes. You've, you, founded, you founded Mammoth Pea, which is a consortia of microbes that are shelf stable and uh, something that can be added in to a reservoir or to someone that's watering. I have a few specific questions about Mammoth Pea, but I wanna share my Mammoth Pea experience first. Um, I was given a sample Oh, it was years ago now, and I just left it sitting next to my microscope for probably about a month, month and a half, and I don't know how long, how old it was when I got that sample. Um, I just threw it under the microscope one day, and I was shocked to see uh, motile bacteria. Uh, it's the only uh, pro you know, microbial product I've ever seen on the market that actually has active microorganisms, which I know is not necessarily... Um, you know, not having motile or, you know, bacteria is not necessarily mean it doesn't have nutrient cycling properties, but uh, I thought that was really exciting to actually see something moving around under the microscope, which was cool. Yeah, yeah, it's really cool to have. And, you know, I can kind of talk about how we developed this particular uh, product, but uh, these, these microbes are actually flagellated, so they are mobile. And so it's very interesting to think about that extra functionality. A lot of products in the market are, are bacillus uh, you know, species, quite frankly, and a lot of them create these endospores. And so they're not necessarily active and you have to activate them uh, over a period of time. And they might be uh, in a dry or a liquid solution. I've seen them carried in both, but um, and many times they're actually entered or, or, enter, or formulated or, or developed on, on the endospore or non-vegetative state. And so it takes uh, some more food source or engaging with plant roots to actually get them going. So I think that's why you don't necessarily see active microbes in, in a lot of those other products. I haven't spent a lot of time looking under a microscope in a while. I loved early on, remember we met, and then you, you did the study, you did the you did some substrate work too. Is that the same study you're talking about? That's on that's on YouTube, I believe. 
What I would say is, yeah, so what I did was I just experimented with different food sources to see yeah. about uh, feeding the microorganisms and how they would respond to different food sources. Um, so that was something that interested me. Uh, what I see from most microbial products on the market, like you mentioned, is uh, um, when, I, when I add different food sources, I'll see a growth in overall uh, like bacterial biomass. Um, yeah. but that's, that's really about it. Um, which is good. It's just not as exciting under a microscope. <laughs> yeah. Hey, I want to be, I want to be clear, you know, mammoth pea is, is bacteria, uh, quite clearly, but they have these morphology structures called, uh, flagella, which are simply tails, little tails that allow for mobility of the cells. Yeah. Sorry about that. Sorry about that. Yeah. So they're definitely bacteria. I know you knew that. Oh, okay. That okay. That's what I originally thought. I misheard you. Uh, flagella are actually a lot of. Uh, that's how bacteria are mobile. They have these little tails that typically spin or they crank as as corkscrews, and they allow them to move through the substrate and move through the rhizosphere and the water columns or move through the soil. And it's a really interesting uh, level uh, to add whenever not only a bacteria is highly functional, but it can move around and activate through different parts of the rhizosphere or through the bottle. And, and even when you're using microbes like this, and this is kind of what I determined over time, if there is some environmental stress and you're dealing with mobile uh, microbes, they can actively get out of the way of that stress. An example is like a pH. Sometimes if you forget the pH, your nutrients and, and you add the microbes and it's not too harsh and then you're, trying to pH your nutrients and you're adding an acid or a base into that, you know, it can potentially affect a lot of the microbes where that pH buffer enters into that mix where your microbes are, are, are mixed into the tank. But if the microbes are mobile, they actually get out of the way and don't experience that much stress. So it's, it's a cool added feature. That is cool. So with, uh, with mammoth pea, what do you, what sorts of results are you seeing out there uh, with people that are using it? Are, are there any environments where it, it doesn't do quite as well, or are there others where it really thrives? You know, that's, that's probably a, a, a never-ending question. I know that when we started, um, when we launched the company, just as a history, I left the university in about March 2015 to start the company, and we'd done a solid a really rigorous year before we, we actually started the R and D on the technology at the university very late or very early 2014. In all fairness, we were, we were getting ramped up to, to try to do something like this at the very end of 2013, got some funding and started it in 2014, went through the process, got some great validation after we developed the product. It was a pretty efficient process. It was pretty well funded and then launched the company in March, 2015 into uh, the cannabis industry and so i scaled up commercialization and production and, and got a small team on the ground and i turned i was kind of still am in a lot of ways wearing all hats not like i was back then where i literally was and getting out and engaging with cultivators and a lot of the commercial growers in colorado were using cocoa so that was our first validation but but i will say that before that the university validation we tested on several different real soil types, meaning we, we brought a bunch of soil back from different environments, at least local around Colorado, that, that represented different soil textures, different soil types. We worked with different potting medium. We worked with a lot of different plant types. We worked with a lot of cannabis growers outside the university. And so we had a pretty good representative uh, data set that we thought it worked well. 
across a lot of different plants and a lot of different substrates because we felt like these microbes were very robust, meaning very efficacious. They could work in a lot of different environments. They had a targeted function that all plants needed. And so if we could just deliver these microbes to the rhizosphere root zone, they would engage with plants and deliver the function that, you know, that they needed and wanted that would help them succeed their development, you know, yield and other properties. Since then, you know, it's had we've grown and we're selling this technology all over the world. Thousands and thousands and thousands of growers are using this and we hear great results across the board. I don't know if I hear all the bad news, if there is bad news out there, quite honestly, but we hear a lot of great news. I mean, you've probably seen some good results too over time, haven't you? We've known each other for years now. Putting me on the spot. Uh, yeah, so actually, uh, I've been working with the Gold Leaf Gardens. Uh, I, I did an interview with Ben Higgins. He's their research scientist. Uh, and uh, one of the studies they just, re- trials they recently completed was with Mammoth Pea. Uh, and they found they got about a 12% increase in wet weight relative to the control. And so now they're doing ongoing trials to replicate that. Uh, but the initial results were quite quite positive, and this is uh, this is this is a setup that I think is is fairly optimal from a microbial perspective. We're talking about large beds that hold about a third of a yard of soil per bed, and uh, that soil is relatively undisturbed for the entire cycle, and uh, has been around for I think they're on five years now with the same soil that they've been amending. So it's a fairly uh, it's a fairly living uh, entity that they have for a media compared to others. So I thought you would actually see less of a, less of a response than that because of the fact that they were doing so much to already, you know, help out the microbial communities in the soil. Yeah. You know, I think that's a fair hypothesis too. If there's only so much value, I think, uh, microbes will bring and once that's maximized, you know, and there is some functional redundancy, uh, so that's actually, that's a really good, uh, that's really good feedback. I, I love that. I want to stay in touch with you on that. I'll say that most of the growers in Northern California that we work with are trying to engage in some type of living soil where they're, you know, they're, they're minimizing or trying to minimize the amount of nutrients they're adding. And they're trying to stay as holistic with their environment as possible. I think they do add some as needed across the growing season and particularly in flower. And they're they're adding microbes and and nurturing microbe life, and a lot of them are plugging in mammoth pea and seeing good results. But you know what's interesting about that also is the targeted functionality of mammoth microbes in particular, where there's a a lot of nitrogen uh, delivering microbes. It's a pretty common function, and phosphorus is a little less so. And phosphorus is really tricky to deliver to plants and in those particular substrates because phosphorus is sticky chemically quite, quite frankly and having some catalyst the microbial catalyst liberate the phosphorus might be uh, why this particular environment uh, this this grower facility is, is seeing that added benefit 12 percent is great that's a pretty good value add oh yeah when we're talking about such a high value crop that's that's a big deal so there what i'm curious about now is uh, over time, what sort of persistence are we going to see? I know you recommend uh, applications over a certain uh, a period of time. Uh, I'm curious to see how that, if that yield increase uh, stays the same across multiple cycles, or if it starts to, at some point, sort of level out to where um, 
you know, they're consistently getting 12% with these applications um, over what their control was used to be. I'm sure they'll eventually switch everything over uh, if things continue down that path. But yeah, I'm just curious how these microbes do over time. I know there's been some research on persistence out there. Yeah, it's, it's, that's a hard question to answer. But overall, I'm kind of winding in, and that's why I gave some background on some of the research I did before uh, starting this company. So I think about that, and I think about persistence a lot. And one of the differences in the work that I was doing in natural systems that was, by definition, undisturbed until I went out there and disturbed some of it with my research uh, to collect data was the disturbance that's inherent with management systems, with agriculture management systems. You know, what I do know is that microbes thrive with a living plant root because plants feed microbes. And so if you're delivering the microbes to the rhizosphere, as an example of an inoculant, those microbes are more than likely going to love that environment because it's a nutrient-rich environment. And if all those other adaptive properties that we kind of prefaced earlier in our talk here um, are, are right for the microbe, the plant's definitely feeding it a food source and it's going to be a happy home. But what happens when, at the end of the growth season? Well, typically the plant gets chopped, the exudates quit coming out because the plant's not photosynthesizing anymore, it's harvested. And so that creates a completely different environment. And so what I would say is there's probably some persistence, but I don't know enough to know how much turnover there's going to be for mammoth microbes in particular, if you want me to just preface it by that, because you're dealing with a very different environment and now the roots are dead and they're decaying. It's probably going to nurture more uh, fungal life because fungi like to break down those very complex root structures that the bacteria then can follow up and take advantage of and continue to mineralize. And so there's a good chance that the re-inoculation with the new plant cycle is going to be critical. And I don't know, I could probably, we could probably do some work together to, to get to the root of this question. Um, maybe through some sampling or whatnot, do some microbial analysis. But my, my guess is it's most efficient to add these inoculants with every new plant cycle because of the effects of a living plant uh, and the interactions a living plant would have on the microbial community that the soil without a plant or plant roots that don't have a plant associated with them anymore that have been cut off uh, are going to have. It's just the environment selects and it's a very different environment. There is going to be some persistence though. It's harder to manage because we can't see that or, or, or measure it regularly. So regular applications, for sure you can manage that. I would hypothesize, and again, this is pure speculation on my part, that after this one cycle, for example, at Gold Leaf, where they got a 12% increase, uh, and then they go to re-amend the cycle, and they'll probably do a light till, uh, and then replant, um, you're right, you're going to see some die-off. But I wonder if you know some of those microbes that were introduced will persist and stay active to where they may see a 4% increase in wet weight over the control next time or something, you know, some level of persistence in that regard. But I wonder if, you know, the addition of, you know, mammoth pea in this case of, you know, microbes that are more active right back into the rhizosphere would uh, speed up that process. Because uh, one thing that, that you know of all people is that these microbes can survive some very uh, amazing conditions, environmental conditions. Um, you know, through dormancy or insisting or all these other processes. Uh, but 
we don't really want to wait for that when we're talking about a high value crop that we're trying to cycle out as fast as possible too. Yeah, that's where my head's going. And so we think about two things. We think about the targeted functionality and how microbes are engaging. And the other level, and you've already said it, is the abundances or density. Uh, at some level, the denser microbial communities or the biomass in general is going to create more function because there's more microbes to create more function. And with those applications, you're going to get to that uh, more that higher density quicker instead of having to revive maybe a latent or a more dormant microbial community that overwintered in a natural example or, you know, is trying to be brought back from last season's crop in this particular example. So I think both of the hypotheses that you stated are really fair. You know, it'd be interesting. That'd be a, that'd be a fun study to conduct. Yeah. There, there's just so much we don't know about the rhizosphere that uh, I think it's really I think it's really interesting. I mean, you've kind of touched on so many things just in this podcast that has brought up a lot of questions. Um, are you seeing a lot of new research coming out on this idea of microbial inoculants? Um, it, it definitely seems to be taking off in agriculture. Yeah, yeah. I think, well, it, just to be fair, I think it's the quickest growing uh, agriculture industry segment across all crops. And the biggest reason for that is because nutrients are really hard to deliver in soils and farmers are having a horrible time managing nutrient absorption and uptake for nitrogen and for phosphorus in particular potassium is very difficult in rural soils and in in, in mineral soils as well and so the industry's taken off because there's a real need for it i've seen a lot of interesting technology it's focused on a couple different you think about uh effective products and there's been a challenge for the microbial biostimulant uh industry in general that's what you call it in agriculture microbial biostimulants we call it you know beneficial bacteria in the cannabis industry but they're microbial inoculants and that's fair across both and it's pretty intuitive you know does do the microbes what do the microbes do do they do it consistently and do they work in many different environments those are the three questions you want to bridge if if they work consistently and they have a targeted function then you can use them with confidence for with precision because you know what they're doing and they continue to do it and that's great for a farmer but if they are efficacious meaning they work across a lot of different management or environmental conditions then they can work for a lot of farmers and those are the three big hurdles i think any manufacturer wants to uh wants to overcome and that's what we acknowledge and i think that's what we overcame with developing mammoth p and it's it's just one of those things where we went into it from a scientific perspective and we engaged it as scientists. We didn't engage it as a microbial manufacturing company. It was a science experiment, quite frankly, and a, a scientific, fundamental scientific endeavor. And so do I think that there are products out there like that? Yeah, there's been some products out there. Our muscular mycorrhizae is an example. It's been around forever. There's nitrogen-fixing bacteria that have been around for a long time. And those technologies will continue to evolve. Some of them are going to get rebranded and have been in spaces for a long time and will get rebranded for new markets or new crops, new industries. And I think there's other cool technologies coming out. Now, how was that a, a talk? It's been a little while now where there's some, some notion of endophyte bacteria. And in some crops, it's, it's, it's developing quicker than, than others where you can have specific bacterial species that will actually engage intracellularly with plant roots to help facilitate plant plant health, 
or trigger specific growth through chemical signaling. So those are pretty interesting technologies because they're super specific. The, the trick is if you have a intracellular or endophytic bacteria that works well across one crop, you really want it to work well across a lot of crops or the crops of interest at least. And so that's a lot of pretty deep research. There's a lot of other technologies also that you think about. I guess there's a performance vertical. We want plants to be very healthy and grow and yield and maximize their quality or flavor or bricks or whatever crop you're talking about. I think cannabinoid and THC is a good example in, in the cannabis industry. And then there's this biocontrol space. And those are the two uh, industry verticals that I'm pretty fascinated with. We want performance and then you want protection. And there's a lot of products in the general agriculture space that use microbes to mitigate pests. And I love that, Tad. I think it's amazing. You cannot fight biology with biology, but it's tricky in the cannabis industry because a lot of these technologies are foliarly applied and with regulatory pressures of microbial counts on flour or on the biomass, if you're adding microbes to above ground applications, and this can happen with some teas also, you might be engineering microbial counts that you don't want to engineer uh, for regulatory purposes. You have to be below a certain CFU. So it's tricky and I've, our company has actually steered away from thinking about microbial technologies above ground right now until we figure out how to think about this better, but maybe deriving uh, biochemical solutions through microbial growth that will attack certain pests or mold or mold or, or mildew. We're, we're thinking about this. We did have one product that we just launched on the market that's not a microbial product for that very reason that I explained, but uh, a, a pretty sophisticated and simple at the same time. Um, targeted oil product for a different uh, insect pest mitigation, and it works good. Yeah, are you are you seeing um, any issues with using a product like Mammoth P or other microbial products uh, in terms of failing microbial tests with uh, soil applications? And I'm not asking specific to your product per se. More just uh, this is something that was brought to my attention recently as, as some of these new states. Are coming online in Canada, there the restrictions around um, microbial testing on flour is uh, really really tight and doesn't take into account a lot of the you know probiotic and prophylactic microbes that exist um, in these growing systems. Uh, do you think you're putting yourself at greater risk by using microbial products or using living soils when we're talking about passing these tests versus a more pharmaceutical approach? No, I, I think just the opposite, but I validated it with Mammoth because I was interested enough to, to ask that question and put some resources on our team. And what, what I think is, honestly, microbes are very rarely, at least the bacteria, going to infiltrate the cells and work their way all the way up intracellularly in the plant and then emerge uh, in the above ground flower tissue. It's just such a tall order and we haven't seen it. It's very hard to do. That's where some of the challenges or hurdles of endophyte bacteria are right now. That technology that's, that's it's cool from a scientific perspective, but very hard because, you know, plant and just like our skin cells, you know, it's a barrier. You know, it's supposed to keep out microbes. And so it's actively keeping out microbes. 
And so keeping microbes in the soil where soil microbes actually function and interact with plants is brilliant. We, we conducted this study at our farm here in Colorado where we did a greenhouse and an outdoor soil study looking at simple, very simple, treated, mammoth pea treated and non-treated, keeping everything else the same, soil applications just like we would with our technology. And we looked at uh, if you count on the flower of the outdoor crop and the greenhouse indoor crop, and in both environments, Tad, the CFU bacterial counts, both of them were, were passing out of all fairness. Um, but the CFU counts on the microbial mammoth treated plants were significantly lower than the non treated. Like, wow, cool. And, you know, then you ask, well, why? And why I think is because if you can engage with a healthy rhizosphere microbiome, these plants are actually creating their own health mechanisms to maximize their health, their development, and all these other properties, which could limit the, the occupancy of different microbes above ground. I'll just say it like that. That's probably not the most suave way of saying it, but <laughs> the data was what it was. That's interesting. I, yeah, I'm, I'm surprised. That sort of seems counterintuitive to what you would expect. Um, well, they're in the soil. I just don't think they come out of the soil is, is, is a short answer. I don't think the microbes are making it up in the soil or making it up to the above ground plant colas where, where they're actually being tested or the flowers in particular, but they're engaging with the plant health mechanism to, to make sure the plant's taking up nutrients. And that's a, that's a primary function of below ground soil microbes, nutrient cycling. And these nutrients are actually building blocks that help build molecules that allow the plants to respond to environments, the stress, to developing quality metrics like terpenes and cannabinoids also. And so if you can maximize, naturally maximize plant nutrient uptake, I think the plant can do a lot for itself. You know, in nature, this is another example. I don't see plants being devastated by, by pests in many cases or mildew in monocrops it happens more so but in nature why why didn't that happen to everything you know these plants persist and to a large degree it's because they have and in nature a long-standing very very healthy uh, soil microbial rhizosphere interaction that allows them to take what they need to survive in their environment yeah my thought was more along the line of soils than microbial inoculants like the idea that having a soil in your room things might get disturbed through employees and uh, some of that dust may contain bacteria that may make its way up onto the colas and then that may slightly raise your cfu count um that or like if people that are trying to go vertical with soils i think that's a challenge there too fair um, enough yeah it's, if you're physically applying Got it. If you're physically applying soil to to any above ground material, there's going to be microbes on the soil. That's one of the problems early on. I was in Vegas a couple of years ago touring a facility that wanted to grow in greenhouses, and they had to shut the greenhouse down. And the reason was because it's a desert out there in Nevada, and they couldn't keep enough dust out from blowing over their plants. And they were failing microbial tests because the dust from the outside that they couldn't keep out of the greenhouse was blowing over their plants. And there was nothing wrong with this flower. It was this natural soil uh, dust, if you will, airborne soil that are basically um, harboring soil microbes because that's where microbes live. 
And so there is, you, you do want to keep soil, the soil off of the above ground, because again, you could be inoculating your above ground plants, but if it's wet, you know, it's not going to fly around as much if it stays in the pot, if it's in trays, I think you can manage that, but you definitely want to take measures to manage that. That's a good point. Yeah. I mean, I think the laws are kind of ludicrous right now around microbial testing. Um, Washington's gotten a little bit better in the sense that now it, it tests for, uh, more specific, uh, strains or diseases, uh, which would impact human health. So I think that is important. I think the testing itself is important, but I think that just like any other crop, we should be able to rinse or wash it or uh, grow it in a way that it contains, you know, probiotic bacteria and it's not dangerous. Then, you know, it just seems silly, but the regulations being what they are, we have to work within them. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And it's, you know, it's hard. Maybe I shouldn't say this when I say it anyway. It's really hard educating regulators. I mean, what a daunting task. And, you know, it's, it's, you're right. It's not, yeah. And this is where, this is what you were talking about a little bit earlier. They're looking at very, very coarse CFU colony forming unit concentrations of microbes. They're not looking at what microbes are there. And so it's, it, those are two completely different hazard issues. And there's very, very, very few, you know, most microbes on earth, probably 99.999% of all microbes on earth are beneficial. You know that? It's a shame that all we hear about are most of the bad ones, partially because we don't know a lot about the good ones. Humans have to focus on the bad ones because they, they're more of our risk, you know? And so categorizing all the good microbes with, with some very, very few no bad players, just inherently nothing, nothing personal. It's just how they evolved um, is, is not honestly scientifically accurate. So that brought up a question for me. I've been wanting to ask you, which is how globally, how much diversity do we really see in the microbial world um, as we move from Arizona to Colorado to Ethiopia? Uh, are we going to see the same microbes more or less, but probably in uh, different ratios or in different functional groups? Um, because I, I hear a lot of talk about using indigenous microbes. So a lot of people are uh, culturing or promoting what is already successful in their area. Um, what, what are there any dangers with bringing in these outdoor, you know, these outside microbes into a new environment, for example? Um, do you want to just kind of touch on this subject a little bit? Yeah, you know, it's, it's a conceptual question. And I think, you know, you hear about as a microbiologist, one of the terms that comes up often is ubiquity, especially environmental microbiologists. Uh, everything is everywhere and the environment selects, you know? And so what you are going to see in most cases, that's more or less true, that there's going to be vast differences in their relative abundances of certain microbial groups and microbial functional groups in some environments relative to others because, again, the environment selects and favors some over the other based on some of the conversations we had earlier in this talk. And so, yeah, in some cases, for sure, in extreme environments, for sure, you're going to see very unique species that just can't persist other places because that environment uh, is not going to nurture uh, the vast majority of microbes. But 
I've seen, I've, I've actually experienced uh, companies and worked with companies who are manufacturing, micro manufacturing companies, and they're trying to get their product over to uh, Australia as an example. And Australia, the, the, regulata- the regulators in Australia were like, whoa, we don't want these invasive microbes. And, you know, I guess I don't blame them. The word invasive is pretty tough. We don't want these invasive microbes in our country. And how uh, this particular company got around that is they proved that the microbes in this particular product they were making were in their country already. And so I think everything more than not is everywhere. It's how it's packaged. It's the relative abundances. And there's some real, uh, some real variability in how different microbes at different relative abundances can be packaged to perform different functions. And we've realized that. And, and there's this whole other level still. This was so interesting. Scale is my favorite word ever. And there's this whole other level of species. You know, do we even know what a species is? Because I'll tell you right now, you know, there's numerous species of E. coli. And I'm just going to give this extreme example. And very few of them are even bad for you. We only hear about the bad ones. And I use that example because everyone's like, whoa, E. coli, it'll kill you. Now I used to work with E. coli all the time. There are certain strains of E. coli, E. coli, the genus and species. It's a species. It's supposed to be distinct, but that's not true. It's just like a cultivar in plants. There's so many varieties within a cultivar that have different traits. Well, microbes have the same kind of characteristic within a species. And so there's uh, uh, there's a strain specificity that shifts more so than species specificity around different regions, around biogeography of microbiology. And it's harder to measure, Tad. And so that's this other level that as microbial ecologists or the industry in general, the, the area of environmental microbiology is just now starting to wrap its head around. How do we measure this with confidence um, within any one species? It's an ongoing challenge. Okay. <laughs> I don't have a lot to add to that. That's interesting. Was that too much? No, that was good. I just, uh, it just gives me a lot to think about. Uh, one other question or something I did want to bring up that I thought was interesting from hearing one of your talks though, was that when you talk, you've, you've used the word consortia quite a bit. Cause when we talk about these microbes as being, you know, generalists or very targeted, uh, you did some research that found that any one bacteria in mammoth pea by itself did not have the same effect as all of them together. Like the, the sum is more than the parts. Can you just touch on that really quickly? Yeah, I was kind of touching on that in my last, in, in my last little rant there where, you know, there's, there is a real magic in the interactions of microbes and those relative abundances. It's just true. And there's no single species that act in nature alone because microbes have evolved to interact not only with other plants and other biotic and uh, you know uh, counterparts but with other bacterial species in particular at the very beginning of the creation of life so to speak and so what we realized knowing that uh, what we knew as, as microbial ecologists from our academic training was that we needed to create a consortium of microbes, which is, again, the same word for almost the same word for a community. It's assembly uh, of different species that come together, that interact to perform 
uh, a unique function or have interactive benefits. And so that was our goal at the whole time to create consortia of microbes in any kind of product that we were going to deploy for agriculture because we felt like they would be more efficacious and that they would have a higher functionality because it mimicked a natural system. And as an example, if we had a, a highly functional, stable consortium and we entered them or we added them to any one soil, they would have a lot higher chance of persisting and, and, and engaging with the existing community in the soil and plants in that environment than a single species, which would be very much out of its element and probably have a lot more competitive pressures for food and otherwise uh, with the not only endemic microbes, but the other, the other biotic life in that soil. And so we tested the theory or the hypothesis um, by not only testing the consortia and nurturing this consortia that we have in Mammoth Pea, but then we broke down the individual species within, the, within this formula and tested their functionality. And then we combined all twos, threes, and four combinations to realize that in, in this formula and at that concentration, we had optimal functionality, which couldn't be achieved by any of the lesser um, counterparts, meaning the one or two or three species combined. Really fascinating stuff. That is interesting. And, uh, you know, I wanted to touch on some of the, you, you, one of the topics we had put on here was the myths of cannabis cultivation. What are the beliefs growers have held over time around certain growing practices and are they legitimate? Um, unfortunately though, we're out of time for today, but I would love to maybe follow up with you another time, uh, down the road if that would work. Yeah, absolutely. We're going to have a whole session on myths. You probably know a couple yourself. I've got a few ideas, but I would love to hear what you have to say um, with your background. But uh, before we sign off, I want to put you on the spot. Uh, could you maybe give listeners one actionable thing that they could do in their gardens to promote microbial health uh, besides using mammoth pea? What else can you recommend uh, growers consider just as a good good practice? Here's, here's, here's what I'll say. This, this is an easy one. Uh, just remember that carbon is a currency of all life on earth. You know, that's what distinguishes healthy soils and high cation exchange from lower cation exchange or not so fertile soils. That's what distinguishes natural systems from agriculture systems that were heavily farmed. It's soil organic matter or carbon content in the soil. And if you can nurture and maximize your carbon content at some level, you're going to nurture the soil. You're going to nurture the soil health, and you're going to nurture the soil health not only in the ability of the soil to hold on to nutrients, but you're going to harbor the microbial life that can help cycle that nutrients. So carbon is the key for all of us on Earth, and it's no different for the soil. Awesome. Thanks. I really appreciate your time today, Colin. I uh, look forward to talking to you again soon. Thanks for coming on the show. Yeah. Thank you so much, Dad. It was a pleasure. That was Colin Bell of Mammoth Pea. If you would like to learn more about Mammoth Pea, you can go to www.mammothmicrobes.com. And if you would like to try it out in your garden, don't hesitate to reach out or you can order directly on the KISS Organics website. That's www.kisorganics.com. And if you haven't left us a rating and review on the podcast, any recommendation is greatly appreciated. And thank you to those of you who have supported the podcast via Patreon and helped me keep it running. My next podcast, in fact, is coming up with John, a Patreon supporter of the show. 
We just recorded a podcast comprised of listener questions, and it was a lot of fun being on the other side of the microphone, and John did an excellent job. I can't wait to share it with you here shortly. You are listening to the Cannabis Cultivation and Science Podcast. I'm your host, Tad Hussey of Kiss Organics. Thanks for listening.